Welcome to ASD Engage, a podcast for families of children who are currently waiting for an autism spectrum disorder or ASD assessment. I'm Dr. Heidi Kiefer, a clinical child and adolescent psychologist. I'm Maureen Mosley, a psychometrist. And I'm Sean Brumby, also a psychometrist. We work on teams that assess children for ASD at Holland Bloorview Kids Rehabilitation Hospital. Each episode, we will present a topic that reflects concerns brought forward by families we work with. You'll hear information regarding the assessment process and insights and information from a variety of specialists. And more importantly, we'll talk directly to families who share some of their personal stories with us in an effort to help guide you through the assessment process. So in this episode, we're tackling the topic of eating and feeding. According to Autism Speaks in 2018, a recent review of scientific studies found that children with autism are five times more likely to have mealtime challenges, such as extremely narrow food selections, ritualistic eating behaviors, and meal-related tantrums. Joining us to talk about these issues today are developmental pediatrician, Dr. Sharon Smile, and occupational therapist, Christy Raphael. Welcome, and thank you both so much for joining us today. No problem. Hi, podcast world. (laughs) Thanks for having me. (laughs) Uh, So, Christy, occupational therapy is tied to a bunch of different services. I know that I often have a hard time describing what an occupational therapist does. Can you explain it for us? Sure. It's a great question. A lot of people also um, get confused about what we do, especially when we um, talk about working as occupational therapists with children. Um, the first thing you have to do is to rethink the word occupation. So most of us think of that word as relating to a job or a career. Uh, when really occupational therapists, we refer to occupation as anything that we do in a day to occupy ourselves. And we categorize those all of those activities into sort of three big areas, self-care, so anything that you do in a day to take care of yourself, um, such as eating and dressing and going to the bathroom, Um, productivity, which for an adult could be work, but for children it could be learning, and um, leisure, which for children is play. Um, So for, for me, working as an occupational therapist with children, I look at all of those areas, um, just not looking at it as a career, but more of categorizing things as occupations into those three categories. So Christy, how did you get into feeding services in particular? Um, So I started out working uh, in the community with children and quickly realized that, um, you know, kids have to eat, obviously, uh, and feeding is at the top of parents' lists of concerns and things that they worry about um, with their children, uh, whether they're typically developing or whether they have some kind of a developmental challenge. And so I I sort of quickly realized that um, I needed to better educate myself on Uh, aspects of feeding and and be able to help uh, parents address these concerns. Yeah. Uh, And Dr. Smile, so Christy kind of touched on this. Why does the topic of feeding come up so much in the context of ASD? We know that um, feeding difficulties, the prevalence or the presence of feeding challenges in kids with autism spectrum disorder is quite varied. So up to 49 to as max of 89% of kids will identify as having some feeding challenge and that could range from picky eating or not or textural difficulties um, difficulty with sensory characteristics of foods which could later lead to some health risks such as obesity um, as well as um, micro well nutritional deficiencies it is a problem but as Christy says it's one of the things that kids should do and I find that mostly when families are coming in for an assessment, that we're very focused on that social and communication aspect, right, of that challenge, trying to get interventions to, to close that gap. And what parents tend to do is, in the meantime, they just feed as, depending on what their child likes, and it's not necessarily a priority because there are bigger priorities at the moment, which could be getting your child to speak. But it exists, and as Christy had said um, earlier on, in the community, especially for preschoolers, we the feeding challenge is always there, and it presents sometimes at that one year of age or when they're transitioning from um, 
liquids to solid foods or any transition process in their dietary intake. However, parents are able to compensate, right? They find other mechanisms to support them. And then once they've reached the school age years when they're now with their peers and at school and around lunchtime, feeding becomes more of a challenge, right? Because they are no longer able to have the pediasure for the lunch or um, multiple times per day and they look different from their peers and then the question comes up how can we help yeah I want to I want to explore that a little bit later in our interview um Dr. Smile um how did you become interested specifically in the topic of, of feeding and ASD I love food. I'm a real <laughs> carnivore. And Christy knows this. I say that all the time. I'm a true meat eater. And it gives me pleasure um, to eat. Um, but I think in, the, in my clinical work, in doing our history with families, recognizing that we'll ask, how is your child eating? And when I go through a 24-hour food diary call by parents, recognizing that, this kid is not necessarily having all the food groups that they should and puts him at risk for iron deficiency anemia. Or parents are compensating by giving lots of juice, lots of pediasure or milk. And I'm wondering, how can we, why is this happening? And I think based on that, trying to figure out what intervention would be appropriate, recognize that we don't really have a good hold or understanding of feeding difficulties in preschoolers especially and I wanted to come at it from a preventative lens so if we know it's going to happen how can I prevent this what are the factors that are driving this and that's what led us into connecting with the feeding program here at Holland Bloorby to try to figure out what's happening and how we could support our families. So Christy can you give us a sense of what meal times often look like with the families that you work with? Uh, great question. Um, obviously, every every family is different, so meal times are going to look different um, depending on whose home you might peek into at any given time. Um, but there's definitely themes. Um, there's a lot of anxiety around meal times for a lot of families, um, particularly families that are in the mode of trying to get their child to follow a mealtime routine or trying to get them to try a new food. Um, so there's definitely anxiety uh, for some families and there's other families who are, you know, sort of in survival mode and they've almost, you know, decided that, okay, this is the way it is. Um, and sometimes that just looks like the child, the, the family, um, you know, following the child around with a spoon, um, trying to eat, uh, trying to feed them, um, or, you know, having the child eat in front of, you know, on the couch in front of the TV or in front of an iPad, um, and sort of being very restricted to just a few different um, food choices. Yeah. What are some of the, the common problems with eating and feeding that you see in the children that you're working with? Well, I think like Dr. Smile talks about, um, we see, you know, definite themes of, um, you know, a limited uh, food repertoire. So children preferring only, um, you know, very few foods from each food group or maybe not having foods from certain food groups altogether um, or being very brand specific. Um, so, be, you know, preferring fast food um, nuggets or fries versus, you know, ones that might be able to be made at home. Um, so there's definitely patterns that we see there. There's also patterns of, um, you know, being resistant to following a routine. So not sitting at the table, sort of wandering around, um, getting up frequently, uh, as well as refusal behaviors, so things like screaming, tantrums, gagging, pushing the spoon away when parents are trying to offer new foods. Yeah. So you touched on um, seeing patterns, right, in, in terms of, like, patterns related to the, the brands of foods that they might be eating or patterns of behavior and stuff like that. Thinking, Dr. Smile had mentioned specifically p- picky eating that children might present. Do you often see patterns related to the, the kinds of picky eating that uh, a child showing? Yeah, I mean, we've, there's there's a few different patterns that I think are well documented in the literature in terms of um, children that are gravitating towards more carb-heavy foods, so things like breads and, um, you know, cereals and crackers and things like that. Uh, definitely the fast food pattern, I think, is something that we see. I think it's, it's predictable. Um, and there's also a 
a category of kids who really have challenges transitioning to um, more solid food. So they would stay on purees um, or, you know, drink smoothies just fine, um, but have difficulty transitioning to foods that need to be chewed or are more difficult to eat. Yeah, I've seen some cases, too, where kids... um they like their food plain. So like no sauces, no condiments, like the plainer, the better. Is that uh, like a frequent pattern too? Yeah, definitely. And I think that has to do with the fact that, you know, a lot of kids um, that are on the spectrum uh, tend to be, you know, very sensitive to different smells, textures, tastes, the way things look. Um, And food um, is undoubtedly a really sensory experience. Uh, and so I think sometimes the simpler the food is, the less complicated it is for kids to process. So it's easier to eat a plain pasta noodle uh, and be able to predict what that's going to taste and feel and smell like and look like as opposed to having different sauces on it each time. Oh, that's, a, that's a really great way of looking at it. Um, at the top of the interview, I mentioned uh, ritualistic eating behaviors, which sounds like a very fancy term. But what kind of behaviors <laughs> would that include? Uh, so I think I've seen, you know, everything from uh, needing to sit in the same spot each time to having food, uh, you know, have to be served on a certain plate or cut in a certain way. Uh, or one where I think a lot of parents can relate to is that foods can't be touching one another um, on the plate um, or, you know, um, kids have to have the same, I've seen kids have to have the same TV show on each time they eat. Um, so I think it's, it ranges, uh, depending, obviously, on the child and how rigid their behaviors are. Mm-hmm. And so thinking about that picky eating and, and those behaviors, how do you help families deal with those kinds of issues? So I think we have to look at why are those behaviors happening. We always have to look at the function of a behavior. Uh, And for parents, sometimes that's hard to do, and that's where um, professionals can come in. Uh, So people who have, you know, experience in feeding like myself or um, behavior analysts who are particularly skilled at uh, looking at or trying to determine the function of a behavior. Um, And I think a lot of, you know, what I've seen in kids is their insistence on sameness around foods or their resistance to trying new foods really relates to anxiety um, and not knowing what that new food is going to taste like. Um, And so rather than dive into that scary bite of food, it's easier just to stick with what we know and what we like and everything will be okay. So I think a lot of times it's, it's anxiety that is um, appearing to parents as just defiant and refusal behavior. Tagging on with Christy, even though anxiety may be driving it and there are behaviors that we see, we have to look at a holistic pattern, right? And see what factors are driving that feeding behavior or challenges with transitioning to new foods or increasing food variety or repertoire. And what we've learned from experience and this is through multiple parent workshops and doing research, is that there are different levels that we need to look at. There are medical issues that need to be um, looked at. And for Christy and anyone working in feeding, looking at dysphagia, where there's difficulty with swallowing or chewing foods, um, one, we have to rule that out, as well as constipation and hydration factors into those factors or factors into food selectivity. And oral motor difficulties, chewing, what's happening with the mouth may also impact on why that child is not eating. Behavior, as Christy brought out, um, are we having mealtime routines? Is there a schedule in place? Are there expectations placed? Um, Sensory issues, which our occupational therapists will um, manage, and there are different research intervention protocols that are available for that. And then there's this environmental factor that is important. And finally, parent-child interactions. That's really important. What are parents' expectations? We need to look at the child's developmental level to look at what should we really be expecting for this child. Is purees appropriate? Because their oral motor function is at a level where only pureed foods are accepted. And if we're trying to transition to solid, it will not be successful. So I think it's having an overall 
picture of that child's feeding pattern and developmental profile is going to be useful and looking at what's happening at the home environment and that parent-child interaction. And Christy's correct, anxiety drives a lot of the difficulty that we see. Um, you know, a lot of times we talk about, you know, parents come and talk to us about a feeding problem. And I think, you know, like Dr. Small just said, we've really learned to try to look at that feeding problem and unpack it and look at what is actually, um, what are some of the underlying factors that are leading to that quote-unquote feeding problem. Uh, and that's why we sort of, you know, have learned to look at the feeding problem through a different lens and kind of go through the list of things. So is it a medical issue? Are there any oral motor concerns? Um, are there behavior issues, you know, challenges, things like that? Um, so I think it's more of a systematic way of trying to unpack what is really underneath and contributing to the feeding issue. So that drives where we go in terms of trying to, to help. Yeah, I think that like that's a really comprehensive way of describing it. I know a lot of times in in psychology when we're thinking about like what is the behavior we see, often we'll use the the visual of like a mountain. So the mountain is kind of like at the surface and and you're seeing that and so in terms of eating and feeding, parents might be noticing like the non-compliance or the defiance around eating issues, right? Or like wanting to stick to particular foods and that sameness that you were talking about, Christy. But then the necessity of actually looking underneath. So what's below the surface of that mountain that might be contributing to what you see. Thinking about that, um, Chrissy, what do we, like, I mean, can you speak to a little bit about the sensory sensitivities that might be at play or at root at some of the eating difficulties that we see? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think we know that a lot of children um, with ASD do have, sensory sensitivities, uh, and beyond that, they tend to process sensory information differently. So they may, um, you know, taste things differently or more strongly or smell things differently or more strongly than, than someone else. Um, and so, you know, given that eating is a pretty sensory experience that involves all of our senses, uh, I think sometimes, you know, when we have kids have an oversensitivity to something, they may want to avoid that certain food. Um, sometimes the smell of, you know, someone else eating at the table is just too much, and it makes that child not want to be at the table. Um, and those things are challenging, especially if the child doesn't yet have the verbal skills to be able to explain that, you know, that I'm leaving the table because I don't like the way that um, you know, my brother's food smells or there's too many different smells in the classroom at lunchtime. And so it's easier for me just to try to escape the classroom. Um, so it makes it harder for, for parents uh, and caregivers to try to be detectives about what is, um, you know, driving the child, you know, what is causing his behavior is when really it may be an underlying sensory issue. So I've heard a bit about, um, uh, sensory sensitivities tied to the idea of hyper arousal versus hypo arousal. Could you explain a little bit like what that means? Um, so it just basically means that, um, so you can either be hypersensitive, so oversensitive to something or undersensitive. Um, so I think we talked about the oversensitive where you just want to avoid something undersensitive might mean um, you know, that you have a whole lot of food in your mouth and you keep putting more in because you're not, your mouth doesn't give you the signals to let you know that there's still something in there. So you might see kids overstuffing or trying to swallow food before they've actually fully chewed it um, or those kinds of things. Yeah. I, I know like sometimes in feedbacks, if a child that I've been assessing uh, is showing like sensory sensitivities, I try to give a parent a sense of how then their child's experience of the world is different from theirs, right? Because a lot of times we, we it, it's hard to put yourself in somebody else's shoes, right? So I don't have a, a good example for, for feeding per se. And if you do, Christy, let me know. But I often use the example for auditory information. So sound can often be... Um, uh, one of those areas that kids are sensitive to. So oftentimes when I'm talking to parents, um, 
I'll be talking about like we we seem to be on the same wavelength in terms of how we're processing this conversation, listening to this auditory information. And so we're focused on then what each other is saying and then um, processing the language and trying to comprehend the conversation. But for somebody who is very sensitive to sound, they might be hearing that white noise of the light bulb in the background. And when they're really focused on that, that could be really dysregulating, right? So how do you, if they're really tuned into a slight sound that you are and I aren't necessarily tuned into, then that could be really dysregulating, right? So they might not be picking up as much about the environment or in the same way that we are. Right. And I think how you can apply that notion to feeding is that it can explain why kids, um, you know, move towards certain foods and away from other foods. Um, you know, if you want to continue with your example of sound, um, I remember one little guy who didn't like chewing crunchy foods because when he crunched it, it was too loud. And it's something that we don't think about when we are eating. We don't think about the sounds that we are hearing as we're chewing um, because that's not really what our brain is in tune with. Um, but for kids that are, you know, particularly sensitive to sound, um, with this little guy that I'm thinking of, you know, things like raw carrots or chips or pretzels just was, was too loud in his head. Uh, and so he preferred to eat uh, softer foods. Mm-hmm. And I think this is why it's important if we have a client who is able to describe their experience with food, it's important that they also contribute to an assessment and not only using what parents have identified as being challenging, but asking. And I think, Christy, I can reflect on one of our clients mm-hmm. who the goal was to eat strawberries, but he explained that when he ate strawberries, it felt like he was eating sand because the way mm-hmm. he experienced the pits in the strawberry was like grains of sand. And why would I want to eat that? Right. Mm-hmm. So based on that strawberries out <laughs> right yeah and and probably like thinking about a strawberry in a way that you or I wouldn't like think about the taste or that that processing of it so Christy when we're asking about meal times in assessment or, or thinking about them in intervention we're really considering a range of behaviors aren't we Oh, absolutely. What kind of, what kind of, so in addition to kind of like the picky eating or those ritualistic behaviors, what other kinds of things are on your radar? Um, I'm looking at, um, you know, sort of the whole mealtime environment. So, um, you know, where is the child eating? Um, you know, are they hungry when they come to the table or have they been grazing all day long? Um, you know, parents just trying to get food in, um, which then sort of sets up uh, for a mealtime that doesn't go so well when the child only eats three bites of food because they're not hungry. Um, I think mealtime behaviors could be difficult especially if we have electronics available. So getting the kid attending to the food and participating in that family um, sitting at the table mealtime might be challenging. And so some of the things that we look for are opportunities to make it more pleasurable. I think also like in the families that I work with too, a lot of times like putting into the context of mealtime, like try not to make assumptions about say, fine motor skills, like uh, in certain families, right, the expectation, like they're eating foods that are more finger foods. So if I'm asking about, like, can can that child use a spoon or a fork, it's probably not as relevant uh, for that particular family based on what their mealtime is like. Um, I think there, there can also be a lot of differences, too, in terms of expectations around staying at the table. <laughs> and a lot of, I see a lot of fights that happen around, like, no, you need to be still when um, maybe the focus should be on, on the eating piece of it. And, yeah, there's going to be some, some movement. I'll probably start and then ask Christy to elaborate. I think... Um, In our experience, what we've found, there has to be some amount of parent education about what is expected, right? And for for any task, there's these prerequisite skills, right? If I'm asking someone to sit at a table, can they attend to sitting at a table for a period of time? If that's not necessarily a realistic goal, then we have to take a step back and start at a different expectation. So I think it goes along... um that idea of, of how do we help parents to tackle these issues and, you know, the idea that we first try to help identify what are these underlying factors that might be contributing uh, and then where do we start with trying to make some changes. Um, and whenever we 
um, try to, you know, implement a new strategy, we want to make sure that it's a small enough step, but we're making a small enough change that everyone's going to experience success pretty quickly. Um, so, you know, even though a parent might come to me and say, I want to work on um, expanding my child's diet and getting them to try new foods, I might say, okay, that's a good long-term goal, but what are some things that we need to work on first? Uh, in order to make that long-term goal more likely to be successful. Uh, and so, you know, a lot of times it might have to do with, um, you know, just getting the child a booster seat so that they have a place to sit at the table um, where it's not as convenient for them to pop up and down and run around um, during the meal time. And we might start out with just having that child sit in the booster seat for, you know, one minute a day to eat a preferred food. Uh, or two minutes a day to eat a preferred food. So we would take really small baby steps um, in, so that everyone's experiencing success um, and then work towards that longer-term goal of uh, getting a child to try new foods. Mm, so really Does building them up over time. Right. right. And parents having their – and for the, the treatment of it as well is parent education. I, I keep coming back to that because mm-hmm. I think we have to ensure that parents understand – where that child's developmental level is at, what is our expectations for um, eating, um, as well as how to support them in their response to the child refusing a food or even when they do accept um, a desired uh, food item. How do we celebrate that? How do we leverage that to go to the next step? So in any intervention when it comes to a child with feeding challenges, parents are integral in success and we're going to have to change parents behavior as well yeah do you ever find that there are any common misperceptions that parents have about their child's feeding or eating difficulties and maybe we'll start with you dr smile it's their fault they're a bad parent or um i didn't pay attention to this and that's really hard to hear because, again, with autism spectrum disorder, everything, there, development is fluid. It moves. It changes with time. And feeding is dependent on many external factors that sometimes we have no control over. Um, another misconception is that if I just have 12 weeks of intervention or participate in an intervention program, this is going to be solved. And that's a misperception because... Feeding challenges is something that is a long-term challenge that a child will have. And Christy can speak a tad bit about this, and I always refer back to her when she says, I can teach, I can try to get your child to accept a particular food item, but he may not, I can't change the sensory responses they have to a food. Um, So we could tolerate, so we're really working at flexibility the child's flexibility around accepting new foods. And sometimes we have to have these honest and open discussion with parents. What is the real treatment for food selectivity? If the child is nutritionally um, adequate and we're not concerned about any micronutrition deficiencies, then we can take goals one step at a time. So small goals slowly over a period of time. Yeah. Christy? Yeah, so for me, um, you know, as Dr. Smiles says, my, my mantra to parents and therapists and whoever will listen um, is you can never make a child or anybody for that matter like a particular food. But what we can do is find different strategies that might help somebody to be more willing to try new foods. And so as soon as we find that strategy or oftentimes it's a different toolbox of strategies to help someone become more willing to try new foods it opens the door to them accidentally finding a food that they might actually like or be able to tolerate Um, and I think that if we can help parents to reframe um, how they look at success with their kids when they're working on feeding uh, into that sort of a way that success doesn't mean they're going to eat 20 new foods tomorrow, but success might mean that they will try different foods. Um, then I think it helps uh, parents to sort of stop looking for the magic, you know, therapy that's going to enable their child to eat at the buffet tomorrow. Um, 
<laughs> that's great. I think this is like been something that's threaded through all the responses and in our conversation since we started the interview. But eating and feeding are emotional topics, aren't they? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, I think Dr. Smiles started by saying she loves to eat. <laughs> um, I don't particularly love to eat. Oh. It's not my favorite thing to do. Um, and I think, you know, for a lot of families um, and different cultures, food is, is an integral part of, um, you know, family celebrations, cultural celebrations. And so, you know, first and foremost, parents want to make sure that their kids are, you know, nutrition, you know, getting the right nutrition and that they're healthy. Um, but they also have a really strong desire to want their child to enjoy eating so that they can participate in these important, um, you know, family events. Um, and it's not to say that that's not a good goal, um, but I think sometimes we do have to help families to understand um, that you know, their child may not enjoy eating. Um, and I think we've heard, um, you know, especially recently uh, out there in the, you know, autism world um, where there's, you know, um, older children and adults who have described um, in quite a lot of detail why it is that they don't like to eat. Um, and so it's also, you know, helping parents to kind of reframe, you know, what might be a realistic goal and what might they be okay with and how can their child still enjoy a birthday party without necessarily uh, enjoying the cake that we assume they're always going to enjoy. And for us to be present as parents for when that opportunity arises and that child would like to trial something that is new, that we're open to support them during that experience mm -hmm. as well. Yeah, Dr. Smile, you were mentioning kind of like mis misconceptions that parents might have, and you kind of went to the the self-blame, right, that mm -hmm. parents might get at. And really, in a lot of ways, I find, like, parents, like, something about feeding your child is almost, like, very integral to the role of I'm a parent. I keep my child, like, nourished um, with this food. And then when that's not working out, that reflects on me. So if we think of post-delivery, the next step is what? breastfeeding or bottle feeding and there is that bonding mechanism that happens and that attachment that happens and I think um, for some families it's a rite of passage right for parents um, to be able to support their child in whatever it needs right similarly providing shelter um, security feeding is also an element and when that is taken away from you or you feel that you're not able to support your child with a balanced dad, parent, it could be devastating to parents. And as Christy said, you know, we can always identify when there's a challenge, but then we have to reimagine how can we then support and support families to say, hey, you're doing the best that you can. We know this is a challenge. These are strategies that we could trial and be there with them while we're trying the different strategies to see which works to help to support this child's nutrition. But it is from breast to bottle. Yeah. Is that sometimes like, uh, like the first time a parent might be getting that message? You're trying the best that you can? I think of like some families where, um, you know, there, there are kind of... Um, differences in the role or the responsibilities that each parent takes on. So somebody becomes responsible for the feeding. And when the feeding becomes difficult, the rest of the family is like, hey, what's going on? Like, why can't you do this? And I think everyone loves, you know, the grandma loves the child, grandpa loves the child, aunts, uncles, and they will offer their opinion <laughs> on parenting skills as well as feeding skills. And it will be challenging for a parent who is struggling with feeding. And then we have the societal implications as well, expectations, what you see on the media, Facebook, parenting magazines, and it can be daunting at times. However, when I do see families, I say, guess what? Johnny, his weight is okay. His height is okay, right? Nutritionally, we're not concerned about any deficiencies. And so having that awareness to have that discussion and, and investigation when it's indicated, sometimes we'll get that pressure off the parent. Okay, medically, he's okay. What's the next step? 
then working with clinicians like Christy and speech and language pathologists as well as behavioral analysts to then figure out what strategies will be important to get Johnny to the next level. Yeah, I'm sure that goes a long way to help um, to help parental stress, to, to lower it. Christy, is there anything that you do to help alleviate the parental stress around their child's eating? Yeah, for me, it's really um, helping parents to once again try to break down what are some things that might be contributing and how can we tackle it. It's giving parents a plan um, because a lot of times, you know, it just seems like this massive mountain in front of them and they don't know how to tackle it. Um, And so I think a lot of times as parents can... um, you know, have some reassurance, like Dr. Smile said, that it's not their fault, um, and, you know, help them understand the reasons why this might be happening, uh, and give them permission um, to accept that the fact that their child's feeding experience might be different um, than the other kids at the birthday party, or the cousins that come over on Sunday, or whatever it might be, um, and then to give them some, some tools to, to help uh, come up with a plan to try to make it better. Yeah. So, and that ties in nicely to to thinking about like when a child starts daycare or school and then eating is an activity that's supposed to happen in these other settings, does that sometimes create additional challenges for the picky eaters and their families? Yeah, I think it's a huge source of anxiety for parents when they have to, um, you know, make a choice about sending their child to daycare or um, whether it's time for their child to go off to school because they worry about whether their child might eat in a different environment um, and, you know, how they might be judged, um, frankly, when they go into those different environments. Um, because, you know, the if the child only eats, you know, Ritz crackers um, and you know, cheese strings, um, you know, and that's all they bring every day to school, uh, parents worry that it's going to reflect on their parenting uh, abilities rather than being a reflection of the child's feeding challenges. Okay. Yeah, I just wanted to add that, yes, there's this judgmental factor that's there where mm-hmm. it's important for parents to have discussion with their school, um, the teachers or day- daycare providers if they're finding that their child is struggling with eating because they could also be partners in the management, right? And um, the blame game and judging a family because a child is struggling is not supportive and helpful. Yeah. So, Dr. Smile, parents may be concerned that their child isn't getting enough nutrition and sustenance when, when he or she is really limited in what they will eat. And you kind of alluded to that earlier. What should parents be looking for as red flags that that might be the case and that their child's health is at risk? And then what should they do with that information? So it's important to look at the kinds of food your child is eating and any supplements that they're also taking. So big items, most of our kids don't like to eat vegetables, and some kids may not like to eat meats, like red meats. So if I have a client who is not having green leafy vegetables or red meats in their diet, I'm worried about iron deficiency anemia. So it's looking at doing a 24-hour data recall. If a parent is recognizing that they're supplementing, their child is drinking milk primarily and having crackers primarily drink for their diet, that discussion should be be had with their family physician or pediatrician and have a consultation with a dietitian to look at calorie intake as well as nutritional intake. Um, they're commonly will see iron deficiency or iron deficiency anemia if it's severe enough. Um, there's zinc depletion, noted protein. We have calcium as well identified in kids with autism spectrum disorder and feeding difficulties. But you may not have um, clinical manifestation. So you have to have a high index of suspicion. And that starts with in the family physician's or pediatrician's office by doing uh, food recall and seeing whether or not the child is doing well. Most kids will have normal growth patterns. So that means weight and height measurements are within a nice developmental trajectory. However, if a child is losing weight or the dad is becoming more restricted over time, parents should have that discussion with their pediatrician. And as such, then blood investigations will be done to identify any nutritional deficiencies. But it's a high index of suspicion that's needed. Yeah, that's good to, to keep track of. So, Christy, 
I guess what I'm wondering is, um, do these issues, do they get better with intervention? Oh, absolutely. I think, um, you know, again, every child is different. And I think that is, um, it's so important to individualize um, interventions for a particular child and family um, and to not um, sort of use like a cookie cutter approach and say that, you know, every child that presents with food selectivity uh, needs to have this uh, intervention or that intervention. Um, so, you know, I think the, the um, situations where I've seen the biggest change um, happens when the family and the, you know, the family and the child are sort of ready um, to sort of tackle these um, challenges because they're not easy um, and to kind of take the, the small steps towards, um, you know, achieving bigger goals. Just like the autism spectrum is along this continuum, similarly feeding yeah. is that Thank continuum, you. right? So we can have kids who are having milder food selectivity, who nutritionally they're well, participating in activities, and really and truly they don't need a multidisciplinary team assessment to come up with strategies to deal with that. Parents need some guidance as to how to support and present foods over time but then we have this other group who's on the other end of the spectrum where they're quite restricted it's impacting on their nutrition so they're presenting with nutritional deficiencies they may have changes in their weight or height so affecting growth and it impacts on their psychosocial functioning in the community so they're not able to go to birthday parties because kids are quite anxious about being presented with foods or they may have to leave school to go home to have lunch because they're so overwhelmed within their academic setting and if this is not deemed secondary to any cultural practices or that child is not having insight into body image challenges we have to then think of a condition that's called avoidant restricted food intake disorder, of which there's an intervention program that's primarily behavioral-based, um, cognitive behavioral-based therapy for that. And some of our kids may meet that criteria and as such should be assessed appropriately and referred to the right healthcare professionals to manage that presentation. Great. Yeah, and I think I'll just add... Um, that I think the way that I would, you know, explain it to a parent if they say, you know, can can we fix this problem or can we cure this? Um, you know, I think I, I often find myself talking to families about the fact that this is a lifelong journey um, because, you know, again, we're, you know, the goal is not that in 12 weeks the child is going to eat, you know, 20 or 50 foods. It's back to that goal of the child being willing to try and that willingness to try is going to um, need to continue throughout life uh, until, you know, they reach a certain point where they feel like we've got enough food. Um, but it, there's not a quick fix. There's not sort of a, you know, a one cure, one program. It really is a lifelong, um, you know, long-term process. That's a different way of looking at it, I guess. Yeah, and kids will um, add as well as remove foods over mm -hmm. time. Right. Yeah. So as we all do, as we all do. Yeah. Christy, compared to when you first started working out with children with ASD, um, have any of your perspectives changed in the way you think about the topic of eating and feeding? Uh, definitely. Um, you know, I think for me, it uh, when I first started, um, like any, you know, young and energetic therapist I was looking for the quick fix uh, you know reading the research where's this you know intervention program that's going to make feeding better um, and I think I just uh, heard and interacted with and had experiences with so many families over the years that had tried all kinds of different therapy programs and they didn't work and I think it was that experience of constantly having conversations with families where they would say, I tried this, I tried this, I tried this, it didn't work, it didn't work, it didn't work, um, that sort of led me to think, okay, we have to actually think about feeding differently. Um, and that goes back to that, you know, trying to be a detective and figure out, okay, let's not look at the top of the mountain. Uh, let's, you know, as a feeding problem, let's look at the things that might be, um, you know, contributing to it. Um, so I think that's probably been the biggest thing that has changed for me, um, you know, over the years uh, working with this population. Yeah. And what about for you, Dr. Smile? I think 
in working with the population as well as Christy and Rebecca and our behavioral analyst in a research capacity, one thing that I've paused often to reflect on is, are we asking the right questions? And then I also pause and think, are we defining success mm-hmm. <laughs> appropriately for families who are going through this journey? So for many of times we look at our primary outcome measure being number of foods. Is that really clinically useful and meaningful? Or should we be looking more at parent-child factors, building that, supporting that, and see how that in itself, if that's more enriched and a pleasurable environment, would that then translate to a wider food variety or increased number of foods? So the population has challenged me to think differently about feeding and to see how else we could collaborate with parents, clinicians, to think through what is truly happening with this child and for kids who are able to um, voice their own opinion, hear from them how they're feeling and experiencing it. And is it a bother to us versus a bother to them? Mm -hmm. So perspective taken, I think, has been something that I've learned during this journey. Amazing. Um, so a question that I'm going to throw out to both of you as well, um, for parents who are listening and are struggling with feeding, is there one thing that they could start working on right now to help their child? And maybe I'll start off with you, Christy. So I think that I would tell parents to, um, or suggest to parents to try not to jump right to the, uh, trying new foods right away. I would, um, you know, have parents to kind of sit down and try to be a detective and really look at, um, you know, can my, is my child willing to uh, learn new things or participate in new things uh, in other aspects of their life? You know, I often, you know, talk to parents about the fact that if you think of, you know, degrees of difficulty, asking a child to try a new food is really, really high up on the list of difficult things to do. Uh, And so I often ask parents how the rest of their day goes. So if a parent tells me, um, you know, that they have to, you know, fight a tantruming child to get them to put their boots on in the morning, which is a relatively easy, um, you know, degree of difficulty, then I'm probably not going to suggest that they start working on the highest degree of difficulty, which is is feeding. Um, So I'll sort of ask parents before they dive into feeding to sort of take a step back and be a little bit of a detective and do an assessment of their own situation um, and decide whether their prerequisite um, things are in place before they can, before they might be successful with working on feeding. So being a detective and what about you, Dr. Smile? I, one thing I would say is not to force feed your child because that plays a negative experience to or associates food with a negative experience. And then we'll have to try to overcome that exposure, um, which can be difficult. I think if parents are concerned about their child's feeding, start that conversation with your family physician or pediatrician. And that person will help with networking with or bringing in other clinicians, such as a dietitian, an occupational therapist, or speech and language pathologist, and not working in isolation, but collaborating. And as Christy said, trying to figure out what's driving this feeding challenge. So I think if we're as said, if for COVID nineteen, if we're in this, to- we're in this together. And feeding is a togetherness sport, right? It's not parents versus the world and child. It's us all coming together, working, and trying strategies to see which one works best for that child. And not all strategies will work. And having a personalized type of view of intervention strategies is going to be key. Yeah. So those are really useful and concrete strategies. Um, Dr. Small, you touched on something. Uh, we're, we're actually recording this episode during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, right now, with that pandemic going on, should parents be thinking about their child's eating differently or having different expectations or goals? Um, 
Yeah, so I think what I would tell parents um, right now as we're talking in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic would be to um, try not to embark on anything new right now in terms of feeding. Um, You know, just try to keep the boat afloat, (laughs) as we're all trying to do, um, and keep expectations low. Don't um, try to, you know, implement a new feeding program or or new strategies right now. Um, And I think, you know, right now it's it's difficult um, to know when you might be able to go grocery shopping or to even be guaranteed that, you know, your child's particular brand of something might be available right now. And so I think, right, you know, do the best you can um, right now. And, um, you know, if you don't have your child's particular favorite food uh, today, um, but you know that you will have it on Saturday, uh, it's okay to say that, that we don't have it today, but you can even, you know, count how many days in three more days you'll have your, your favorite food or we'll be able to have pizza or whatever it is um, just to help kids to feel less anxious about the fact that they don't have it right now, but it, they might have an idea of when it's coming. And I think now would be a good opportunity for one, that surveillance that, Christy spoke about documenting what's your child actually eating because when you do seek out help by your family physician or pediatrician they're going to want to know do a data recall but there are other principles that could be helpful during this time just having a schedule having meal times together as we're all in the same home trying to work on those skills or ensuring that that is in place those are prerequisite skills for tackling feeding in kids or youth. So if we can establish that during this period, that will be helpful. That's great. So I think we're going to wrap up at this point. So Dr. Smile and Christy, it's been really interesting to explore all things eating and feeding with you. For people tuning into this episode, we'd love to hear from you. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions for discussions you'd like to hear in our podcast, feel free to email us at asdengage at hollandbloorview.ca.